And hello, good to see your faces once again as you we plow into God's Word in the book of Judges. We're in Judges chapter 12, and again, thank you for joining us here at Lighthouse uh, on our online service for the 21st of March. Yeah, it's been quite an intriguing series as we've looked at the book of Judges. Again, as I've mentioned, the key verse is that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Uh, we've been studying the story of Jephthah. He's a rather intriguing character, a man whom God used to really uh, bring deliverance to the nation of Israel, specifically the tribe of Gilead. And uh, as you look at this story, uh, been, we saw the height of spiritual ignorance when it came to Jephthah and the vow he made. But uh, we want to talk today, uh, we're going to chapter 12, dealing with the whole aspect of when God's people fight. But before we go there today, let's just bow our heads in prayer and ask for God's blessing on his word to our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we uh, look at the word of God as being inspired, inerrant, problem for doctrine, rebuke, long-suffering. And so, Father, continue to lead us and guide us through your spirit that we might clearly understand the precepts and principles of your word and, Lord, practice them in our lives. So bless us as we hear from you today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start my introduction today with a story taken from Daily Bread by Dave Roper. He starts out with this story like this. Some years ago, my wife Carolyn and I spent a few days camping on the flanks of Mount Rainier in Washington State. When we were returning to our campsite one evening, we saw in the middle of the meadow two male bears boxing each other's ears. We stopped to watch. There was a hiker nearby, and I asked him what the conflict was all about. A young female, he said. Well, where is she, I asked. Oh, she left about 20 minutes ago, he laughed. Thus, I gathered the conflict at this point was not about the female bear, but about being the toughest bear. See, most fights today aren't about policy and principle or about right and wrong. They're always, almost, about pride. And that's what we're going to find today as we dive into God's Word. In Proverbs 13.10, out of the New Living Translation, we read these words. Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. See, quarrels are fueled by pride, uh, by needing to be right, by wanting our way, by defending our turf, and defending our egos. And that happens right across the board. We pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. We read that the men of Ephraim were called to arms. And they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. A real welcome greeting to Jephthah, who had been victorious in liberating his people from the Ammonite attacks and army. And God had done that. And now his brothers in Christ, his, his brothers, his fellow Israelites, had come to him. Uh, instead of joy on their part as to him vanquishing the foe, there was really pettiness and, and quarreling. See, the tribe of Ephraim was, it says, angry and jealous. They were not called upon to join in the fighting. 
the thing is, as we see in Scripture, Ephraim was always brave after the battle. Obviously, the Ephraimites were arrogant, critical, envious, a self-important group. They were sure of their own rights, but totally unwilling to accept their responsibilities. Ephraim was really acting like what I would say a petulant child. For 18 years, the Ammonites had overrun Gilead, and Ephraim had done nothing to alleviate that situation or to go to war and help their brothers in Gilead. Now that the enemy has been vanquished and taken care of, they become belligerent towards Jephthah and the men of Gilead. Ephraim was jealous of the glory that Jephthah had with those who had received after defeating the sons of Ammon. And they've been willing, not been willing to come and fight the battle at the beginning, and now they show up after the fact. Just as they had done with Gideon back in Judges 8, Ephraim wanted the glory. Now when they dealt with Gideon, Gideon was in a sense very nice. He was self-deprecating in terms of the fact that he said to them, you know, uh, the fact that you were able to kill, uh, take on the two kings of, uh, of the uh, Midianites and wipe them out, what you've done is so much better than what I was able to do with the men that were with me, the 300 men. And he pacifies the men of Ephraim back in Judges 8 by saying, you guys are so much better. But Jephthah is not like Gideon. But what's interesting, just as th th there was a sense that Ephraim wanted the glory, we see that jealousy is always a deadly sin when we allow it into our lives. In Galatians 5.20, we find jealousy listed as one of the expressions of a sinful nature when it rules our lives. It's so easy, my friend, to get jealous over the glory that can come to other people for things they've done. And we say, oh, I want it for myself. Doesn't sound very good, but it can happen. Many times we Christians become jealous of other people's lives, both Christians and non-Christians, say, well, I wish I had what they had, or I wish I could live the life that they have. In the church, we can become jealous of other people's callings and ministry. And that's really sinful and wrong. And instead, we ought to be happy for others to rejoice that Christ is using people in situations and leadership or what other aspect of ministry and rejoice what God is doing through their lives instead of saying, well, I wanted it for myself. The interesting aspect about these people from uh, Ephraim is that uh, they've got a bad attitude. What's really bad about it is that they threaten to burn Jephthah alive with his family. He had only one person left, that being his wife, and now after having sacrificed his only daughter because of a dumb vow he made that he had to keep, now he's being threatened with having his house burned down and his wife. And I don't think he took that too kindly. What's sad about this is that God had brought a great victory and they all should have been celebrating what God had done. Isn't that crazy sometimes when God does wonderful things, how God's people sometimes start fighting about stuff that, that just doesn't honor the Lord. We ought to be celebrating. See, the focus was not on the nation, what God had done for the nation, but the fact that we were part of the process. You know, we have the same thing that can happen amongst churches too today. 
We have Pentecostal churches. We have Alliance churches. We have Brethren. We have Baptists. We have Congregation. We have Mennonites. We have them all in Essex County. Uh, most of these preach the gospel. They have different teaching in relation to different doctrines uh, regarding worship styles, church governance. But the majority of evangelical churches in our area tend to always preach the gospel. And when we see people in other churches that are evangelical, we need to remember they are not the enemy. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We might choose to agree to disagree over doctrinal nuances, but they are not the enemy. Rather than fight a common enemy, Ephraim used their energies instead to be contentious and fight with their brothers in Christ. So sad. It sounds what happens a lot in churches today. We, we need to pray for them, for other evangelical churches, that the good news of the gospel will be preached in power. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, the second chapter, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. All evangelical churches need our prayers. Jephthah was very careful in his response to the Ephraimites. Notice in verse 2, And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. What's Jephthah doing? He said, I asked for your help. I spoke to you about this situation. And you know what? You didn't lift a finger. Jephthah's answer was firm but temperate. He shows that their charge was false and malicious. He had called and they refused to help. The greatest boasters, boasters and loudest pretenders are usually the greatest cowards, one author said. Those who often find themselves in fault are prone to shield themselves by accusing those who are innocent. Uh, really what it was, it was smack talk by, to say the Gileadites, the Gileadites were really lowlifes, reprobates, outcasts of Ephraim. They were slamming them, putting them down. So after trying to clarify what had happened and seeing no recourse, uh, and that the Ephraimites, in a sense, were spoiling for war against Jephthah after this great victory they'd had with God's hand, the battle ensues. This, in a sense, was civil war in Israel. So who really wins in a civil war? No one. Remember that? No one. Jephthah takes a battle to a whole new level and look back in the next, looks at, look in the next verse. In verse 5. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed or felled. So the battle with Ephraim really wasn't Jephthah's fault. Unfortunately, Jephthah, though, shows ignorance once again. Jephthah and his men seized the fords of the Jordan River to prevent the Ephraimites from escaping back to their homes, just like Ephraim had done in helping Gideon 
to take on the two kings of the Midianites. They used the same tactics, and it worked for them very, very well. The methodology used was, in a sense, based on a dialectical challenge. We know that when people come from different parts of even Canada or the United States, we have certain phraseologies and expressions that we use. You know, Americans always recognize Canadians because of the used A. Hey, you're going to the bridge, A. You're going to the uh, restaurant, A. And the minute you say that, the Americans seize on it like, oh, ha, ha, you're a Canadian. Uh, I recognize people from the state of Maine because they tend to drop the R in their words. If they're from Banga, they don't even say Bangor, they say Banga. Or I'm going to go Pak Maka. They have different enunciation, and depending where you're from in the country, you enunciate your words a little bit differently. And for what happened with the people from Ephraim, they didn't know how to use the SH word. They couldn't say shibboleth, they would say sibboleth. And that was a dead giveaway that they were Ephraimites. And so when crossing the Jordan, they were first asked, are you an Ephraimite? And they go, no, then pronounce his word. And they couldn't do it. And then as a result, Jephthah the Gileadite slaughtered 42,000 Ephraimites. Here's where Jephthah failed in that he treated his fellow Israelites as though they were the Ammonites. He treated his brothers his, from his own race as though they were the enemy. Oh, my friends, that happens so often in the church today where we look at people that perhaps don't think the way we do. They might be brothers and sisters in Christ and we treat them in a wrong way. We badmouth them. We, we do things that are so wrong and we think they are the enemy. And so often the conflict in churches boils down to pride and legalism. Gary Enrich says here in his commentary on this passage that Jephthah was a hard-hearted legalist. He experienced God's grace in his own life, but he did not practice it in his relations with others. He knew nothing of the tenderness and love and, and the grace of God. And that's so true. Folks, when we've experienced God's grace in our lives, and when we understand what he's done for us, we, in a sense, ought to extend that grace to others. Have you experienced God's grace in your life? Has he forgiven you for your sin? That you need to practice that with people around you, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so many churches are divided over these issues. They divide, they split, they fight, they feud. And the world looks on and says, you're the body of Christ. You're, you're the church. I don't want to belong to that church. No grace there. No acceptance. If that's how they treat their own people, how are they going to treat us? The Bible says that Judge Jephthah in verse 7 judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the city of Gilead. There's nothing more mentioned. There's a new formula in the book of Judges. Previously we'd read, then the land had rest for so many years. Don't see that here. And after Gideon, we never read of real peace in the land. Jephthah is cited in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 32, along with Gideon, Barak, Samson, as men that God used in a great way. All these men that God used, as you look in Hebrews 11, had great faults. But they all, at one time or another, demonstrated great faith, and God used them. 
That's what we need to recognize in our own lives, that God uses faulty, frail people so that the majesty of his glory can shine through them. They're not perfect people. And we're going to see that over and over again as we walk through the book of Judges, that God uses people who are willing, who are available, and it doesn't mean doesn't make any difference as to their family, their background, their situation. God uses those individuals. Another author said, God does not save us and use us because of who we are or what we are, but because of what we may become by his grace and in his power. Isn't that interesting? We pick it up again in verse 8. And after him, Ibsen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried in Bethlehem. After him in verse 11, the Zebunite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. Verse 13, after him Abdon the son of Hillel, the Perizzite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon the son of Hillel, the Perizzite, died and was buried in Perithon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. The question is, we, as we look at those passages, these last three verses, uh, why are these minor judges, in a sense, so briefly mentioned without telling us more about them? I think the author, the author who wrote this book wants us to be aware of how many judges God raised up. It would serve to show us how sin and servitude was so prevalent in Israel. If there are so many judges, then Israel was given over to their oppressors many times over and over, and God would also raise up a judge to deliver them in their dilemma, in their distress, in their bondage. Every time they prayed, even though they weren't fully repentant, God would answer. And as I conclude, we need to understand that insecurity and self-interest, especially in Jephthah's life, are serious character flaws. All of us human beings are afflicted with them to some extent. Many of us struggle with insecurity. We struggle with self-interest. And they can be exasperated by periods of rejection in our lives of people around us as it was in Jephthah's case, and can become extremely dangerous in the life of a leader. But they don't disqualify a person from God using that individual. So if you're insecure and you're struggling, that doesn't disqualify you from God being able to use you. God did use Jephthah to save his people. And Jephthah is honored, as I said earlier, in the book of Hebrews, uh, for his faith and for his achievements and how God used him. It's also a warning to people who would be leaders that God wants to use them in a significant way. How do I know that? Because leadership of God's people is a great responsibility with a potential for doing good and harm. We saw just recently, as you've been watching the news, of an individual who was a renowned apologist who uh, I admired, heard him speak, just a great man that I thought God had used in a fantastic way to talk to individuals about faith in Christ, and he defended the faith, and he also put forth 
very clear arguments why the Bible was God's word and live that life, as we thought, with integrity, with honesty, and the way he dealt with people. I, I admire that. But what's sad about this, my friends, as I looked at this man's life, it came to light that he was actually a sexual deviant. Found out that he actually owned some massage parlors, and he did things that are shouldn't even be mentioned. And found out that his whole testimony after he died was tainted and tarred, because as they started going through his phone, as they went through his computer, they saw pictures of women that should not have been there and things that he was doing that were wrong. And so his legacy as an individual was just messed up badly and did damage to his ministry and to other ministries around as a result of that. That's why leadership before God is a great responsibility. It has a great potential for doing good and a great aspect for doing wrong and harm to the cause of Christ. And I don't have to mention people's names. You know what I'm talking about. But the thing is, we need to live our lives in a godly way so that Christ can be glorified in and through us. Those who are called, uh, in a sense, need to be aware and acute way of our sinfulness and the need of God's grace in our lives on a daily basis. We also need to, in humility, be able to acknowledge when we have damaged others by our poor judgment, by acting out of insecurity and selflessness, rather than out of a genuine love for those we lead. God wants that. But remember when it comes back to the issue of conflict, and we're all going to face conflict, my friend, that humility is needed in every situation. Do as best as possible to live in peace with one another. See, Pastor, is there ever a sense in which conflict sometimes will happen and is needed? The answer is yes. It's important to confront sin in people's lives. If you love your brother or sister in Christ and you see them in error, go to them in private and speak to them and say, you know what you're doing is not right, but do it in humility. The book of Galatians says to consider yourself lest you also be tested and tempted in the same area. And so there's a sense in which, yes, conflict is inevitable. There's sometimes we need to do that, but remember your brother and sister in Christ is not the enemy. And sometimes I think if we could just see what happens when, between perhaps even a husband and wife or between friends and when there's conflict and there's strife, that Satan sits in the corner and he's just rubbing his hands in glee because it is causing disharmony in the body of Christ. Disharmony amongst believers. causing. And when this went down between Ephraim and Gilead, Satan thought, wonderful. Don't treat your brother and sister in Christ like the enemy. Remember who the real enemy is, who is that out to destroy the, your very soul, your very life. And so when it comes to conflict, remember, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so when you find yourself in situations where you want to just strangle somebody, ever been there? <laughs> yeah, we all have. Zip your lips. Take time before God, before you respond. That God may be glorified through you in areas of conflict and through areas of challenge. 
I remember it, when I played hockey for the Bible college called New Brunswick Bible Institute, our coach, Mr. Hogue, actually challenged us as men because uh, we were in a, what Don Cherry would call a rock'em, sock'em hockey league. And so because we were the Bible school boys, uh, we got, took a lot of punches to the head and there was a lot of things that went down that were just really wasn't right. And he said, men, I don't want you to retaliate whatsoever. Because he said, don't tell me how good your relationship with, with Christ and that you're serving God if you can't, by your demeanor and by your conduct, live for Christ on the ice even when you're taking dirty hits. He had a good point there. And so the issue is this. Conflict, it's inevitable. But be careful that you answer in such a way as to bring glory to God through your response. God does not cause us children to bring anger into a situation, but to bring a sense of justice to bring a sense of understanding so that he would be glorified through us in our relationships with our brothers and sisters especially those who are in christ let's pray father thank you for your word to our hearts bless us and encourage us in our walk with you or that we might practice these principles and precepts which we've talked about in christ's name amen thank you have a great week.